Good day, dear listeners. Steve Preda here with the Management Blueprint Podcast. And today's guest is Dara Rosenbaum, a founding partner of Rosenbaum & Taylor, a boutique law firm specializing in high-quality legal representation of businesses throughout New York, offering personalized solutions, including litigations, contract drafting, review and negotiation, business disputes, and insurance coverage. Dara, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Please excuse my voice. I think we talked off there that I'm uh, battling some laryngitis. Uh, no worries. I'll ask the editor to boost your voice with digital tools and you'll be fine. The magic of radio, right? <laughs> <laughs> I hope you can do that. So yeah, great to have you. And uh, you know, I love uh, professional services firms and, and to talk to leaders of, of such firms because I think you guys have unique challenges of growing and being so dependent on people. And I'm also always curious about how these professional services get formed. So, mm-hmm. so let's start with your entrepreneurial journey. What prompted you to found your own law firm in a hyper-competitive market such as New York? It is a competitive market. That's a good question. Crazy people, right? So way back in 2002, actually, Scott hired me. So Scott and I were working together at another firm. He was a partner there for many, many years. And I was his associate on a team of associates. So Scott so Taylor? About, I'm sorry? Scott Taylor? Scott Taylor, correct. Partner. Scott okay. Taylor, correct. I'm on a first name basis with him. <laughs> so we started, you know, we, we worked together for about 10 years. He'd been at the firm for about 28 years. And I worked there for about 10. And we'd always kind of, within our own little world, joked about, Oh, if we were dealing with, if this was Rosenbaum and Taylor, we wouldn't have to deal with the politics of a larger firm, or we could do this if it was Rosenbaum and Taylor, or hey, if it was Rosenbaum and Taylor, we could do it our way. And it always kind of been the joking name of the firm. And we worked at a firm total of about 30 attorneys. And things get to a certain size, and there's nothing wrong with certainly being larger. But when things get to a certain size, you just get certain power dynamics that develop and political issues that develop. And we just felt like we loved practicing law. We loved practicing law together. And one year, 2001, uh, sorry, 2010, between Christmas and New Year's, we said, you know what? We think it's time. And we, from pretty much January 1 of 2011, though we opened the doors in May of 2011, we just decided that every day we would do something in furtherance of creating the firm. Mm-hmm. So we were still practicing at the other firm up until April of that year. Um, took you know just finished up and basically spent a lot of time speaking to our clients and discussing their matters with them and basically speaking to them about coming with us. So we were very, very fortunate because all of our clients and all of their matters came with us. So we walked out that walked out of the office, the old place with 90 something boxes of files. And on that Monday morning, we were ready to start at our own firm under our own name, working on the same cases we've been working on before. So what is the difference between being a lawyer in some kind of partnership mm-hmm. and building a law firm as a business. What, what's the difference between the two? I would say that, I mean, you know, I think I spent the first part of my career here in Wisconsin. I've been in business for 11 years, kind of thinking of myself as an attorney with her own firm. And there was a mindset shift after a couple of years. I was saying, this is a, it's a business. As we grew it, you know, we were hiring people, we were moving into different space, we were taking on additional responsibilities and treating it, obviously, you know, treating it as a business, I always treated it that way, but just thinking of it as a business really gave me a lot of insight into the way that small business owners, mid-sized business owners think and operate and the challenges that they have. So that's sort of what has informed a lot of my work in the transactional litigation space where I'm supporting small and mid-sized businesses. So are you guys building this uh, firm as a partnership or you are 
actually think about scaling and building this as a, as a business? Well, we're a professional corporation, so we're actually an S-corp in, in New York. And you know, it's not just the two of us anymore. So we have other attorneys here. We have other support staff here. So we're growing. And the expectation is, I mean, I don't want to get too big. I like the personal touch we offer, but I could see being as large as maybe 10 attorneys. Okay, that's cool. Mm-hmm. So let's switch gears here a little bit and talk about the theme of this podcast, which is Management Blueprints, Business Frameworks. Mm-hmm. Um you know, we talked on our pre-call uh, about this framework that you developed. Maybe it's called Set It uh, and Forget It or some, some other kind of name you can call it. But you, know, you said that it gives business owners peace of mind and it's a blueprint which they can basically apply in their business. So can you describe this and what the idea behind it and, and how mm-hmm. it works? So, I mean, in, in terms of business formation, one of the things I think we talked about was in business formation. A lot of people are very excited to get the name, get themselves registered or not, and then just get money, get, you know, get ready to make money. And there's some framework that you need to put in, in, in place. You know, it's really the blueprints for a house, the blueprints for your business. So what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? Who's going to do it? Why are you doing it? All of those types of questions. So when I refer to something as set it and forget it, for your older listeners in the US, probably may remember this uh, infomercial guy named Ron Popeil, who was selling some kind of oven where you would just you know put all the food in, set it and forget it, and then come back and have your dinner. So my thought process is when working with small and mid-sized business owners is you as a business owner do not want to think about the legal issues every day. You want to be one of my friends. Set it and forget it. You want you just really need to check in with it. But when you start the business, you want to have the appropriate framework. If you have partners, you need a partnership agreement. If you're an LLC, you need an operating agreement. You need the you need the foundational documents that define what the business is, what the business isn't, what it does, what it doesn't do, and what everyone's responsibilities are. So that's why I mean I think the blueprint word is an excellent one there. Because once you have that document and once you've agreed on all of those things, you get to put it in the drawer or save it in the computer and you have it as a reference document, but you don't need to think about it every day and start coming up with new rules, new guidelines every day. So to me, it's a lot like playing a game. You and I can't start playing, you know, a game on a court and you know, you make a move or do something. And I say, well, no, that's against the rules. You say, well, we don't know what the rules are. So it's nice to have that. That handbook, that guidebook, that manual, the agreement, whatever foundational documents you need for your business, worked out with an attorney ahead of time. So do you say like, no, we actually dealt with this before. We talked about before we formed the business or when we formed the business, what would happen if one of us wanted to retire? If one of us wanted to bring in a new partner, if we were given an opportunity that required a great capital investment, how we would handle certain issues and who would be responsible for certain things. So those are the types of things. That, and also they're built in a lot of protections with respect to who's responsible for what and where liabilities fall. So I think that's how I describe it in terms of the set it and forget it is create the relationship on paper cement, brainstorm all the details that you need to go through and all the, you know, and come up with as, with as, you know, deal with as many foreseeable issues as you can early. You don't have to keep revisiting those relationships. And that goes for external relationships too. It goes for relationships with vendors, customers, clients, manufacturers, distributors, whether you're in a personal service business or you're in a product business, because you want to set those relationships in the beginning and then have that document to go back to. But you want to get into, you, know, you, you want to do the business of the business. You don't want to be worrying about the legal stuff. So it's almost like a prenuptial agreement. Similar uh, in concept. Yes, for, for I would say similar in concept. Now, I think what I understand is that the problem with prenuptial agreements is that it's quite depressing to go through all the potential problems that mm-hmm. marriage can face and mm-hmm. actually come up with rules. It can basically spoil some of the fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that this is the same 
for a business. I mean, when you and Scott uh, started, obviously you understood this and probably it was easier for you because you have uh, faced many of our clients having these problems. But for uh, two partners, they're excited about the business idea for them to get together and to talk about all these negative potential eventualities. Uh, is this something that's relatively easy to do or uh, do you see that uh, being a challenge? Well, let me just say that it's not it's not negative things that you're dealing with. And I think that you're dealing with emotions, but different emotions when you're forming a business as opposed to maybe entering into a marriage. So I think that you're not dealing with with negative things, first of all. And when you're dealing with protections, you're dealing with, you know, trying to think about when you're at the when you're at the most excited, when everything's going well, when you have a great vision, it's a great time to deal with all of those things. And there's nothing, it's not necessarily negative things. But you know, what happens if one of you uh wins the, you know, When's the Powerball lottery? And you no longer want to be in the business. What happens to your shares? Where do they go? Where does your interest in the business go? Do you have any management control? So you're dealing with things like responsibilities and duties and structure. It's not necessarily negative things. We're not always talking about somebody becoming uh, deceased or disabled, but you're talking, or you're talking about disputes. You're talking about in, in, in some cases and in most cases, how you're going to make decisions. So it's not necessarily negative things and it doesn't, it doesn't create, I don't think it creates hostility or, you know, Create, introduce a negative feeling. I think to me, it's a comfort that people can have that we've already dealt with all these issues. We sat down with somebody who has experienced in all these things, who knows what other business owners have gone through and have given us an opportunity, has given us an opportunity to look at the issues we might face and deal with them ahead of time. So that on a day-to-day basis, you're not trying to figure out like, okay, well, you know, if we have three partners and one of them wants to do this and two of them want to do that, do we be, are we voting based on people? Are we voting based on number of shares? Are we voting based on role in the, in the business? You don't want to deal with those things on a day-to-day basis. You want to have that determined in the beginning and then just move forward under that framework. All right. So, uh, so the two business partners can figure that out and you can help them do that. What about other negotiations when uh, business owners negotiate with vendors who are perhaps more powerful than they are? Mm-hmm. Um, or or customers who are, who are very powerful. What is your suggestion? How can someone negotiate with some someone who is much more powerful than they are, or mm-hmm. someone who's much weaker? What would be, what is your strategy uh, for them? There is uh, as often it's a very good question because there's often a power imbalance. There's an owner of a, of a building who's looking to to contract for certain building services, and obviously the owner can go anywhere, and the person who's going to be contracted for the services is really looking to land that account. Or, you know, really any, whether it's personal service or it's products, you know, you can go to a different manufacturer, a different distributor. There's generally a, a strong power dynamic or a strong power differential there. And I think that what you need to do, especially if you're working with an attorney, is make sure that the attorney understands what your position is. I have worked with clients who say, you know what, I need this contract. I am not walking away from this contract no matter what. We need this for the lifeline of our business. Just help us get the best terms we can. So I think it's a quite, it's it's important to know and to share with your attorney or to know for yourself what kind of power do you have? Are you the only manufacturer that can make this part? Have they kind of, you know, has this particular company that's coming to you failed in a relationship with somebody else for a reason that you understand very well and that you won't, the problem that you won't have with them. But what is it you can offer? And then I think it's important to go into any contract negotiation, recognizing that you're never going to get everything you want. Somebody once told me that the, 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 the contract negotiation is Latin for 
nobody's extremely happy. I don't know that that's necessarily true, but I think you have to be able to, you know, you're going to know where you want to give and you know what you want to take. So there's a couple of things you can give up over here in this paragraph up above, because you know, when it gets to the later paragraph, you really have a strong position with respect to something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just recently saw, I was browsing on Amazon and I saw a book, which was, about, I don't, I can't remember the title, but it was about growing the pie rather mm-hmm. than focusing on sharing the pie. So how can you negotiate in a way that you both of you together grow the pie that you can then share? Another thing that comes to mind is, and I, I read it in a negotiation <clears throat> book, is that the best question to ask is not to actually oppose a close, but to ask, is this the best you can do? And then, you know, if hopefully they respond, ah, well, we can do a little bit more. And then you can ask again, is this the best you can do? Is this really the best you can do? Mm-hmm. So it's a very non-threatening way of asking more. And if they can't do any more, then you can still uh, accept the terms. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's a very good question to ask. And I think there's a couple other questions that I ask when I'm doing contract negotiations. For example, you know, if my client is doing is manufacturing, is doing some type of you no, know, is, is manufacturing our product, and I say like, you know what, I, mean, I need to get the price to this per piece. What can we do to get there? Mm-hmm. So now we're, you know, and I make it a we problem. Sort of like, you know, we're looking at this together, you know, sitting metaphorically on the same side of the table, looking up at the wall and thinking about what the problem is. And we start to, you know, thinking about other terms because now you've kind of set the mindset of, okay, you know, for whether it's a product or service, okay, no, well, I need to be at this dollar value. I'm providing building maintenance or I'm providing janitorial services and I need to get to this number of dollars per month or this number of dollars per square foot. And then somebody may say, well, okay, we can do that in year one, but then in year two, this is what we need to do. Or I can do that, but then I need to decide. Then I need to sign a two-year contract with you or maybe I need to sign a six-month contract with you because you don't. I'm not sure how you're going to do yet. So let's wait and see how that goes. Uh-huh. So I think sometimes it's important to kind of pick the elements of the contract that is most important and try to work, you know, work the other elements toward getting to that. Mm-hmm. Love it. So that's a very friendly way of negotiating. Mm-hmm. You also talk about setting rules in a business friendly way. What do you mean by that? And uh, can you give me an example? Sure. So I've heard, I mean, I've heard lots of people over the years say, we don't want to get the lawyers involved. It gets so complicated. It gets really expensive. And you know, the way I look at it is my job is to be business friendly. My clients are not coming to me to kill deals. They're not coming to me to stand in the way of them doing business. They want to get the contracts. They want to have the relationships. They want to have good relationships. If they have a dispute, they want to resolve it in an amicable way so that their reputation isn't damaged, so that the relationship with that particular entity isn't damaged, and so that they don't have a big financial a financial hit. So the way that I look at it is, you know, setting rules in a business-friendly way is set the relationship in a reasonable way so that everybody knows what the rules are and everybody can behave properly. So things like cancellation terms, you know, you have to think about what cancellation terms should be for your particular product or service. If you're a service provider providing security for events and you know that you have an outlay of cash 60 days before the event to get everything set up, but you don't want a 30-day cancellation policy. And the client you're working with will say, well, we'll say, well, I need 30 days. And you have to explain, listen, here's why it has to be 60. And this is, let me me understand. So I think if everybody understands that you're not making arbitrary rules and you're not making rules that are too strict or that are really, you know, heavily in favor of one side, and you're trying to just be fair, to me, that's the way to encourage business. So those are the types of issues where that comes up, where you know payment terms, cancellation terms, the scope of work is a big one. Now, the scope of work you want to be, you want to define the scope of work very clearly, or you end up with um, you know, what people call in construction and other industries scope creep. 
scope keeps creeping up little by little by little. And, you know, suddenly you're doing a much bigger project for the same price you agreed to the smaller project for. So you want to just set those guidelines and to use your word to set that blueprint. What's the blueprint for our relationship and how are we all going to behave? I think some of the challenges in negotiations is also the information imbalance. Mm -hmm. One party understands the process a lot more deeply than the other party. They know what to ask for. They know the landmines. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to be an investment banker and uh, often we were selling uh, the business of a small business owner to a large corporation or a private equity fund. And they had very experienced lawyers who knew exactly what to do and they were writing the contract. And the challenge was, you know, what do we don't know you know what what is it that you don't know uh, that you don't know mm-hmm. and uh, and also then to explain the business owner why certain things are in a certain way and to also have a, an argument uh, the buyer that some clauses are unreasonable and it should be on them to explain why it's reasonable and sometimes they had to admit that it was not reasonable Right. In negotiating. So, and see, that, that certainly comes up pretty often where, you know, there's that imbalance of information. And I would say two things there. One is find the right advisor, whether that's a friend or an attorney or somebody, you know, somebody who knows what it is you're going through. And the other thing is, you know, find a network of people who you can trust because you, very few people in this world are doing something that nobody's ever done before. So if you have a network of people who, whether they do exactly what you do, they don't have to, but what are they encountering? Have those conversations and have those people who are sort of in your village who know, you know, listen, hey, I ran into this issue. It happened a lot in the last few years with contracts that needed to be canceled because of everything that was going on in the world. So people are going like, well, how did you handle that? And well, I had a, I had a client who handled it this way. And I'll explain that. Well, okay, I see how they're handling it, but I would recommend this strategy. So some of it comes up is just in law school, they call it issue spotting. You need somebody who is experienced enough, who's seen enough to know kind of where the pitfalls are. And, you know, a contract may look fine to a client. They bring it to me and say, well, can you just give this once over? And when I start kind of showing them and I'm putting a magnifying glass to it and showing them where I think the problems are, sometimes they're often surprised the things they didn't even notice in terms of the implications that somebody might have for them. That's it. That's really interesting. You know, the other thing I experienced was that problems can arise in a transaction when the two attorneys are of different caliber. Mm-hmm. If you have like a major big big law firm attorney who have done a lot of bigger, let's say M&A mergers and acquisition transactions, and mm-hmm. then on the other side, there is this attorney who's only done a couple of transactions, or maybe this is the first transaction, then you can have a situation where the experienced attorney are going to be condescending perhaps, or maybe a little bit arrogant, and the other attorney will be maybe a little bit insecure. and then. They might not be able to resolve problems because the insecurity and the condescension is going to get in the way. The ego is going to get in the way. So mm-hmm. have you experienced this and how do you think this can be uh, resolved? So what I say is, and I, I've, I've given this advice to other people, but I, what I say is I love it when people underestimate me because I think it gives me a tactical advantage. <laughs> so, you know, yes, uh, I'm, I'm a small firm. I've been doing this 25, I'm doing this uh, over 20 years now. So there may be somebody, somebody on the other side may perceive that they're more powerful than you are or more experienced or more skilled. And that may be true. But I think there's an element of in every business is, you know, is, is you don't show that you don't you don't show that 
I'm not familiar with, or I don't understand, or I've never done this before. And that's where that network comes in. If you've never, you know, and I think, and you, you obviously you want to go to the right attorney. You want to speak to somebody who say, you say like, listen, have you dealt with this issue before? What attorney did you use? Because you want somebody who you're comfortable with. That's a big deal. I think one of the things that your question kind of raises for me is that, yeah, you may want, you know, you may think that the best place for you to go is with the, you know, loud, fast talking, angry attorney who you think has just got this pit bull in him. And they're going to fight for everything that you want. And you may feel as a client may feel uncomfortable dealing with that person. That person may not match your personality. That person may be condescending to you. Like that person may not be, you know, you may not feel that that person is listening to how you want to do things. They're going to tell you how it has to be done because they've done it before and it may not be in line with what you want. So I think critical, no matter what your personality is or what your needs are in any area of law, I always recommend to somebody that you find an attorney that you're comfortable with, who you know understands what you want, understands how you want to go about it. Because if you have a relationship that is very important that you really need to have continue, you may not want to send in the person who is going to be condescending and rough with somebody because it may, it may jeopardize the relationship you want to build. Yeah. Is there such a distinction as a corporate type attorney and an entrepreneurial type attorney? Like in business, you have the corporate employee who is more, uh, maybe more inclined to to not make a mistake, uh, perhaps, or to to protect their career and to think about their next posting. Whereas you have a business owner who will be uh, looking at maybe the long term value creation in the business, or maybe the long term relationships, or or being more creative. Do you think that there is such a distinction that? You have more entrepreneurial boutique law firms that more of an entrepreneur mindset, whereas the big uh, golden triangle, I don't know, the big uh, corporate law firms, or it's just uh, it's a faulty analogy. I mean, I'll speak to my experience, which is that, you know, being a small business owner myself, when my client sits across from me or calls me on the phone as a small business owner, I get it. I mean, I understand what they're going through and I understand that, you know, for example, cost is a big issue. Time is a big issue and reputation is a big issue. So there's all sorts of, you know, lots of other things, obviously. But, you know, I understand fundamentally what it means to be in business. And I think that that brings a perspective that's important. I'll never cast aspersions at large law firms. They certainly are, you know, they're, they're large and, and have been in business for a long time for, for very good reasons. But I think the approach is a little bit different. I think it's more of a structured approach, whereas what I like to do is individualize and personalize the approach for every client. You know, I may have a client who comes in and says, listen, here's what I'm doing. I'm kind of doing this on a shoestring and I need to know, I want, I want to stay, I want, I want to form a relationship with you and I want to stay with you throughout my journey as an entrepreneur, but I need to know what I need to do now and what I can afford to wait to do until a little bit later. And that's a different dynamic and a different relationship than I think they, that person might have that they went to a very large law firm, you know, where the fees are going to be higher where you're going to be dealing with, you know, people at different levels who are going to be handling a matter who may not necessarily be interested in helping a solopreneur who's starting their entrepreneurial journey. So I think there are, there there are the right, there are right clients for right firms and there are clients that are not fits for for the same firms. I love working with small and mid-sized businesses because that's the space that I live in. And I recognize, I mean, listen, it's been a big deal for me to recognize that the work that I do and the firm that I have supports the families of nine people who work here. And that's true for my clients as well. It's a different perspective at a firm that has hundreds of employees across the world. Love it. Love it. 
Well, that's a really enlightening conversation. And if people would like to find out more, if they live in the New York area, well, first of all, are you only serving people in New York? Or because of virtual, you, you can also reach out to further uh, places as well. Okay. And then secondly, where can people reach you and how can they get in touch with you? Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, so I practice throughout New York and New Jersey. The firm is Rosenbaumandtaylor.com. I'm sorry, the firm is Rosenbaum and Taylor. The website is Rosenbaumtaylorandcom And I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn very frequently. So I would welcome anyone to feel free to connect with me, to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I always enjoy those conversations. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the show. I really enjoyed uh, our conversation. And um, you know, if you are listening here and you enjoy it, then we are now doing two episodes a week. So check your Apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts and frequently because there are new episodes with exciting entrepreneurs coming up all the time. Thank you for the conversation, Dara. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Everyone has a good day. Thank you, too.